Welcome to the RSP Cast. We have an episode of Film and Data, which is something that Dwayne McFarlane and Jay Moyer started up on the RSP Cast a couple of years ago. They've graduated onto things that you know are pretty darn good. But we're reinstituting that today with Dwayne. I'm going to play the role of Jay, and we're gonna. I'll do a little bit of film. We got obviously we got. Um, you know, Dwayne McFarlane with PFF, you know, providing the data. It's always great to have him on the show. And we're going to talk a little bit about week one and some of the, and some teams that we found pretty interesting in terms of what they have to offer this season, you know, concern teams that interest us in terms of positives and negatives, um, players, positives and negatives. And of course, as I, as I as I joke, my buddy Christopher Brown says, "Plug your shit." So, you know, if you haven't gotten your rookie scouting portfolio projections or the RSP, um, you know, pre-draft, post-draft, while the drafts are over, if you want to learn about these rookies for your waiver wire, um, it's a pretty great source that you're going to be able to get that information. Very comprehensive, and it's pretty evergreen. So, you know, take a look at that. You can get it at mattwaldman.com. All right. Well, Dwayne, thanks for joining me. Did you was the week one as and you know as good as anticipated for you overall? Are you glad? Are you glad as a member of the media as we've all been that this week is over pretty much? <laughs> Actually, you know, I mean, it's my favorite week because you know for kind of like the niche that I've built you know, in my audience with utilization and stuff. I mean, week one is such a huge unveil. Like preseason gives you a little bit to think about, but you also know every team handles preseason different. So it's like, how much weight can you put into any one thing? And then week one gets here and the true intentions are they're unveiled right now. It doesn't mean they won't change. doesn't mean that they're static for the rest of the year, but we really get that first data point. And you know, some things are head scratchers, you know, some things are surprises. Some things are, exactly as you thought some things are exactly as you thought and you wish you would have listened to yourself and not let yourself get bought into the hype around a certain player thinking well everybody else is going there maybe i should too you know what i mean um so i mean <laughs> we could do a whole episode i know it's not the point today but i mean we could do we could probably do five episodes just on kyle shanahan right and the things that he does With, um without a doubt or or <laughs> things that fantasy managers should do or the way that people talk about fantasy management when you were talking earlier on twitter about this week about you know people talking about upside i thought that was a great conversation starter about you know people picking waiver wire players for upside and i and i think yeah but that's like that can be fool's gold so much so it's a it i think depends it depends on, on what Exactly. And it depends on your roster. What yeah. do you need? So for example, if you drafted, if you were hyper aggressive and you're like, you know, last year's rookies boomed, I think this year's rookies are going to boom. So maybe you built your roster in a way where let's say you have to start two players, uh, you know, two receivers and two flexes, and you wanted to fill both flex spots with receivers. And let's say maybe your, your second flex spot, you drafted Rondell Moore and Elijah Moore and Terrace Marshall players you know yeah. that a lot of us love but you're planning on one of them filling that that number four receiver spot and now all of a sudden you look after week one you're like wow i don't feel comfortable putting any of those in 
So what should your bit, what, what should you do in that situation? Let's say you already own two backs, you know, um, like to me, a guy like Sterling Shepard, a guy, you know, like Cole Beasley who got ignored at times, they can be a viable option, you know? And, and here's the other thing, like who would have equated Jamal Williams with the word upside before week one? Yeah. No one. And that's the proof. I don't think we are really good at predicting upside. <laughs> yeah. I think the math is pretty freaking loose, to be honest. And I, I agree conceptually with what a lot of really smart people think about upside. And I, I do um, believe that it is a thing. But I think there are more ways to get to upside. And there are more ways to think about floors, for that matter, than just someone's age. Exactly. I, I think that's a fallacy. I think that's wrong. Yeah. And sometimes it's about what would you rather have? You know, like I've, I've, I think I brought up the example of I'm a big Brian Edwards fan, but there are cases where I would say, listen, Zach Pascal might be better off for you just from the standpoint of, you know, his reliability, you know, or at least the perception of the reliability that he's brought um, to the game. Now, we, you know, and there might be cases where you go, well, would you rather have a receiver who may not be as dynamic as an athlete, but you know that he's going to be the first or second read in the offense on a regular basis compared to a guy who's maybe lately been the third read in most of his progressions until the end of the game, you, you know, and you're then you're relying on the coaching staff to go, hey, we need to make the, put this guy, you know, one to two spots higher up when we already have Darren Waller. I mean, again, that's a... You're, you're presuming rational coaching, you're presuming, or you're presuming that you're more rational than the coaching in that regard. That's the funniest part, right? Like Antonio Gibson is the best example right now. Yeah. People are losing their minds because they know Antonio Gibson played receiver in college, so they can't fathom how in the world could he not own the passing down work. Right? Uh, yeah. Well, I mean, because J.D. McKissick's really good at it. Yeah. You can't just look at Antonio Gibson. J.D. McKissick is also really good at what he does. And that's part of the equation. I mean, we want to think these things into existence as fantasy owners because, you know, we want to win and there's players we get excited about. Antonio Gibson being one of those. I mean, a young player that we know can really, you know, he could be in every down back. He really could be. But at some point you have to wake up and be like, you know, he's not. Yeah. And, and nothing's changed. They're not putting him on the field in the two-minute offense. They're not putting him on the field in the long down and distance. All that is still going to J.D. McKissick. Basically, the variable that drives how many targets Antonio Gibson is going to get is are, are two things. One, are they going to be more willing to pass on first and second down when he's out there and design looks for him, which is a path to where he could get more targets. Or number two, it's the game. And if they're in more long down and distance and they have to run the two-minute offense more, Antonio Gibson's going to suffer if they're playing from ahead and they're staying on, you know, on time as you hear coaches talk, right. You know, or they're on schedule with their down and distance and they're not in many third down and longs, not in any fourth down and longs don't need the two minute offense. Antonio Gibson's going to have a bigger game. I mean, I think it's pretty straightforward um, at yeah. this point. Um, and here's, and, and, here's yeah. the other thing about Antonio Gibson that just cracks me up. What you just stated was, well, because he played receiver at Memphis then they presume, well, he should get all the receiving looks. But he didn't play a receiving back out of the backfield as often. He played in the slot a lot. And guess what? How many receivers do you know beyond first-round picks at receiver actually start and get regular targets as the primary guy 
within their first two years in the league. Not many. Not many receivers do that. So it's the presumption that this is actually a high-end receiver. But you have to think, well, the guy split positions and was kind of in this nether region of like, you know, kind of limbo of between one position and another, just like Tony Pollard, which made them difficult evaluations. And so, you know, the assumptions there, but when you actually, you know, the other part too is, you know, the benefit of having some contextual understanding of what he did on the field, you start to realize it's like, he was raw in both positions. He was an athlete. You know, in college, you know, it's the same thing. In college, when guys enter the league, enter college football, oftentimes the recruiting designation is athlete, which is basically, well, he's a run. We, we like his ability to run with the football and he can catch some, but he's too small to be a running back or he's too big to be the, uh, this or too big. You know, they haven't figured out what he is yet. And I think Antonio Gibson was that. They were like, we know we just need to get the ball in his hand. So we'll figure out a way to do that. Which when that happens in college football, that means this is a guy without refined skills who needs who we need to figure out where he's going to be and how to refine him. But in college, we you know, we're not going to spend that time coaching him up like that cuz we we got to get prepared for the for the next game and we're going to just find an easy way to exploit the fact that he's bigger, stronger and faster than than everybody else. And we'll teach them what we can, but we only have so many hours a week that we're allowed to actually, you know, practice in due to NCAA regulations. So, you know, we got to keep things simple. And so people thinking that he's going to come onto the field and suddenly be Justin Jefferson, you, you know, the Justin Jefferson of running backs. Yeah, I, I'm with you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. Um, but speaking of like running backs, you know, one of the reasons we got together is, our, our mutual friend and and former RSP alum Jay Jay Moore is like y'all need to do a podcast this week because because you know Dwayne Dwayne and I are both tweeting stuff all Sunday and I'm looking at Dwayne's tweets and he's talking about the utilization of DeAndre Swift and showing how like the the link between high utilization and elite PPR play. And I'm going, yeah, he's getting lots of looks, but I'm not sure how I feel about what I'm seeing on the tape. <laughs> so we're both like, and Jay's like, you know, and, and of course, Jay's more of a film guy too. So, and Jay and I, you know, I like Swift better than he did. Jay wasn't a big Swift fan coming out. Um, but this, you know, there were some things that he and I kind of agreed on. So he, he thought it'd be fun for us to kind of, present like the the opposing cases for for listeners to to think about so as i as the guest you know <laughs> I, ha- I have to go first does that you want me to me? go first i can oh, go no, first. i don't i don't i don't mind going first okay. i don't care whichever way yeah uh, it doesn't matter either way no we can, I, we can flip super... a coin and then call it how about that let's flip <laughs> we'll do the coin flip heads or tails Dwayne. uh i'll go heads tails <laughs> all right well i get to go first then okay cool um yeah so with deandre swift um i mean you kind of teed it up really um the key is he was in a route 65 percent of the place okay um he handled 52 percent of the rushing attempts so if you just go back to 2011 you know not looking at you know how good a player may be or whatever just looking at you through a, a utilization lens 
When you've had players get to um, between 60 and 70% of the routes, and I cut the top off a little bit because there are some extreme cases where you've got backs like up at 80 and 90%, and, and we don't know that that's something Swift's going to get. So I just put the range of 60 to 70%. Um, and then I brought the range down even on the number of rushing attempts, because I do believe in different game scripts when the Lions aren't behind, I think we could see the rushing attempts flip where Jamal Williams could actually be the player that gets more carries on the ground than DeAndre Swift. So even though this past week you saw DeAndre Swift get 52% of the rushing attempts, I could easily see that and 43% to Jamal Williams. That's a number I could see easily flip either week. So I took the threshold down to, if you at least get 40% of your rushing attempts on your team, you know, between 40 and 60 is the range. And then if you got at least, you know, 60, uh, you know, between 60 and 70% of the routes, and here are your PPR finishes for backs that have done that. 16, 3, 4, 5, 9, 1, 3, 5, 1, 2, 3, 9, 3, 1. So it's really good. Um, and, and so for me, um, even if DeAndre Swift isn't as good, you know, as maybe we think he is, or maybe he is, I mean, well, we'll he, that's where you, you'll come in. I do agree that the difference between probably a nine, right? Because there's a couple of ninth place guys in there. There's a couple of fifth place guys. The difference between some of those ninth and fifth place versus the first place probably does have a lot to do, you know, with skill, right? Um, it also probably has to do with, you know, guys that hit the upper boundary of each of those numbers I just gave. Um, actually, I know that that's part of the case because I did specifically look at that. And so here, here's what I like about Swift. Um, I think the Lions are a bad team. Not That's not what I like, but what I like about his role in particular is long down and distance. So that is a play of third or fourth down and seven yards or more to go. And how I chose that number is something that I look at in my utilization report is I zoomed out and I looked at the, just a quick diatribe here. Is that okay, Matt? Like, yeah, so how I came up with these numbers, because a lot of people, I, I actually, I'm going to go back and write a, a piece about this. I need to. Um, what I did is I went and looked at the league and I said, okay, in what situations does the NFL pretty much pass all the time? Meaning it's not really debatable. It's not a gray area because there are certain situations where certain coaching staffs think this is a, this is a down where I'm just as willing to run as I am pass. And other coaching staffs may be, no, I'm more willing to run. Other coaching staffs may be, no, I throw it there. And this number is evolving. The NFL is moving more and more to pass heavy in all game scenarios that we look at over the last five years. So taking all of that into account, what I look, I found third down or fourth down and seven yards or more to go. It's pretty much a hundred percent passing unless one trying to run a game out or two, you get the occasional draw play that a coach will still run, but you don't see those as much as you used to. So the reason that's important is those are undebatable situations where we know it is a passing down. And I didn't want a bunch of gray, muddy area. I wanted to see, okay, when coaches, when it's in an undebatable situation that it's a passing down, who's on the field? The other area is in the two-minute offense. And that's more than just the two minutes at the end of each half. It's truly when a team is going into a hurry-up passing mode. And that's one of the beauties of PFF and the data they track. I can't get that data just from looking at raw uh, you know, play-by-play data, like if I were to scrape it and pull it from the NFL – but because we have folks that are actually charting all these things at Pro Football Focus, you have 10 different people charting each play, right? And so they're capturing what each one of these variables are. And so the two-minute offense was the other one, where 70, 80% of the time, it's a pass play. It's not a running play. It's slightly um, 
less than long down and distance as far as how often it's a pass versus a rush. But those were two very easy situations, situations where teams still are very willing to run. So I consider them to be more rushing downs or at least they want the appearance of being willing to rush, meaning they're going to put the back out there that could do either, right? They could still catch a swing pass. They don't need to be in a matchup against a linebacker and run an angle route. They just, they could, they could catch a swing pass or they coming off of play action, or it could be a running play. So that's third or fourth down and one or two yards to go. When you look at that at the league over the last several years, it is still down where a lot of times teams, you know, want to run. So when you guys hear me talk about short down and distance, long down and distance, two minute offense, there's very specific reasons I chose those scenarios as, as trying to figure out who owns what role in a backfield right now. There's a gray area in the middle that is basically your second down and six, second or third down, second down and six or more is a gray area for teams. Third down and four or five starts to become a gray area for teams. Um, so each team still has a dynamic in play that doesn't, it's impossible to say with a blanket, you catch everything with the utilization report. But my intent was to say, okay, in these specific scenarios, we know the league thinks these are passing or rushing downs and how are the backs in each backfield being deployed? And so when I write the utilization report, I do try to give that other context based on the team. And I know that was a bit of a, a lengthy um, setup, but I think it will help with the entire sure. conversation, you know, for people. So what I like about Swift is 91% of those long down and distance snaps. He was on the field, two minute offense, 82% of the snaps. He was on the field. Those were my two biggest concerns with Deandre Swift coming into the year, because Jamal Williams is also pretty good in those roles. <laughs> you know, he, Jamal Williams is what um, Jamal Williams owned those roles over Aaron Jones in yeah. green Bay. And you could probably argue, and I would love to hear your thoughts, but Aaron Jones is probably better than Deandre Swift as a receiver is going to be my guess. Um, you know, he just, but Jamal Williams is good enough to hold him off the field. And so that was my concern. But what this is showing me is that the coaches are going with what they said. They said, they've got an A back is Jamal Williams. The B back is the Eckler. It's the Kamara. And not to say DeAndre Swift is as good as those players, but that's the role that they are putting Swift into. And when I look at the lions, they're going to try a lot. They're going to be in a lot of losing game scripts. They're probably going to be behind and down in distance a lot. And so knowing those things, I feel like DeAndre Swift pro provides me with a really good floor because he's going to be the passing down back in a PPR scenario. And when games get really nasty, just on volume alone, like he's going to give me upside. Um, whereas Jamal Williams looked may have looked better on the field, but the way the coaches are utilizing him right now is narrower, meaning the game script has to work more in his favor to be on the field um, enough to give me the consistent production I want. Now, I will say, and I wrote this in the utilization report, I think this is the three-person offense, and Jamal Williams is one of those people. <laughs> I think it's DeAndre Swift, Jamal Williams, and TJ Hawkinson. I think that's who the coaches believe are the best three players. It's kind of weird. We don't see many offenses ran that way, but based on utilization week one, they're, the coaching staff is pretty much telling us those are the three players they want to have involved the most. So, I think Jamal Williams can still be a viable RB3 with RB2 weeks, probably still give you some spike RB1 production weeks. Um, and, and the argument for him, I would say, would be, look, in a game where his role was almost kind of eliminated in a way, he still came through. Now, some of that is because they ran, I don't know, Matt, seven gazillion, 92 freaking plays. <laughs> they ran 92 plays. That's like 30% more than normal in any NFL game. So we're not going to get that all the time. So that's part of what helped Jamal Williams and he scored the touchdowns. But 
I want to make sure I'm very clear that I'm not saying Jamal. I do think Jamal Williams is a great sell high candidate. I don't think, but when I say that, I don't think he's a giveaway candidate. So I had people, you know how this goes, Matt, I'm learning now, now that I'm in the industry, if you will, uh, when you say something and you even said it this weekend on Twitter, you're like, Hey, don't, don't assume X, Y, Z. You don't know how some of these leagues work. And sure enough, right after you said that, like 20 people are like, yeah, you know, and I'm like, Oh, okay. Um, but, but where I'm going with it is when I say sell high on Williams, he finishes the second running back in the NFL last week in a PPR. I mean, go get a great wide receiver too. I don't mean hand him off for, you know, parts, you know, Elijah Moore. Yeah. You know, I don't mean hand him off for nothing. I mean, sell high means you go get a real, you get the best possible value you can. And if you don't, well then, you know, don't worry about it. You're, he's still going to be usable. So I know I said a lot there, but that, that's, that's where I'm coming at it from, from a perspective of, you know, the utilization, but I would be interested in understanding like if, you know, what your thoughts are and what you saw in the film, obviously. And if, I, the other thing I would really love, and I know sometimes this is tough to pin down because, again, it's a data thing, but when you've seen players maybe struggle in certain areas, and this is so hard because we're dealing with people. Coaches are just people like you and me. They make mistakes. They have bad processes. They have good processes. They make good decisions. They get caught up in the heat of moment of things. They get tied to decisions they made in the past and let them dictate too much what their decision-making should be in the future. There's so many variables, it's almost impossible. But where I'm going with it is like, if there's certain things that you're seeing on the field, are they more likely in your mind to get a coach to say, you know what, we need to tap the brakes on this Swift thing. Like we probably need to make this more of an even split because he's not doing X, Y, or Z. And I know that's hard, Matt, because they're again, nuance, like, is yeah, so sure. uh, there's so much of it. Like when we talk about these things, it's very hard to have any sort of blanket blanket statement. As much as people want that, like blanket statements are really hard, yeah. you know, to produce sure. in football. For sure, and that's what this podcast about is is not making blanket statements on the most part. We tend to go a lot deeper and nuanced than that. But I have two questions for you before I I answer those because I certainly wanted to go down that lane. But what was Jamal Williams' utilization report? Sure, what was yeah, his yeah. Data? So 35% of the snaps. So number one, 68% of the snaps to DeAndre Swift. So they were on the field together. Um, if I'm doing my math on the fly right there, uh, Matt. So 68 plus 35, 98. So they were what on the field, like 3% of plays uh, together. Then you've got rushing attempts, 52% to Swift, 43% to Jamal Williams. Routes overall, meaning the times the quarterback dropped back to pass could have been sacked, could have scrambled. Those are possibilities beyond just throwing the ball. 65% of the routes went to Swift, 31% to Jamal Williams. Targets, though, 20% to DeAndre Swift, 16% to Jamal Williams. And so a stat that I really track is targets per route run because I think it can be telling. You can have certain players that are on the field less, but via design, they work to get them more involved when they are out there. This was actually the opposite last year in Green Bay where Aaron Jones was out there less than Jamal Williams in these situations. But when he was, they made sure to try and get him the ball. And so the different ways I look at that are like, how often is the running back the first read yeah. on a target? Because the NFL average is 38%. But all of a sudden you'll see a player at 60% that tells you a lot, even though they may be on the field less. Um, so short down and distance, that was 60% to Jamal Williams, 40% to Swift. Sorry, the targets per route number, I skipped it. 41% uh, 
for Jamal Williams when he was out there versus 24% of the routes that Swift ran, he was yes. targeted. Yeah. Um, inside the five, 0% for Swift, 100% for Jamal Williams. Long down and distance, 91%, 36% for Jamal Williams. Two-minute snaps, perfectly split, 82% to 18% in favor of Swift. Okay, great. Okay, so, you know, that's the first thought. And, I, and I'll get to the other one maybe a little bit, or I'll, first question, I'll get to the other one a little bit further down the line. But my thoughts are this. First, I'm going to argue against the idea of Jamal Williams by saying just what you, you kind of broached, which I was thinking the same thing, is that while Jay, Jay and I would both look at the tape and we agreed that, that Jamal Williams looks like the better back, like just from a aesthetic standpoint of how they play um, and I'll we'll profile that one is that Jamal Williams is clearly the better inside runner and the way that they deployed the two Jamal when the team early in the game decided they're going to run downhill and blow the defense off the line of scrimmage and run inside between the tackles it was Jamal Williams and Jamal Williams was I, I you know he just from the standpoint of being on the field and what he did he was he was he had some smaller creases he did a better job of getting yards after contact he had shorter run he had some good runways but at the same time too he's a little bit more powerful you know now DeAndre Swift in the early in the game you saw more draw plays out of him that was they kind of ran more of the draw but they had a couple of zone plays where he did a good job of pressing and cutting back. There were two in a row where he had some had some really nice creases, and he did a good job of pressing and cutting back, which isn't a you know which is nothing to sneeze at you know at all. I mean they both did a they both did a solid job there. In the route running standpoint, Jamal Williams was better with his breaks, better with his setups, better with his transitions to get downhill more punishing and able to get yards after contact than Swift in terms of, you know, when he was facing a linebacker or facing a linebacker and cornerback, he was able to split those guys, get positive yards, get the first down. Whereas with Swift, he got more yards, but he had huge swaths of turf to be able to maneuver. Yeah, so, the one play in particular I saw, yeah, I mean, like he was just wide, his huge play was wide open. Exactly. Where was Swift uh, with and with Williams, it was more like he's covered by a linebacker fairly tight. He still gets the ball and carries a linebacker across the first down marker, and he's like two to three yards away. Whereas with Swift, he's slipping out of his routes and not able. And when he does catch the ball, he's not in a position to transition as well. And and then at the end of the game, you could argue that that he basically took himself out of the route, trying to chip um, the defender who actually wound up pressuring Goff, and I don't think it was a sack, but forced a throwaway on fourth down at the end of the game, and it was a play where Swift basically threw his whole body into chipping a guy where he didn't need to do that, and when he got, and as a result, he was basically throwing himself downfield and into the arms of a linebacker who was covering him, so he wasn't in a position to run the route well. And one of the issues that both Jay and I identified with Swift pre-draft was that he's an overrated route runner. Like he has issues that he has to clean up. So I say all that from what's on the field and you, you know, you could say from a qualitative standpoint, 
yes, Jamal Williams is the more refined back and maybe the more versatile back in terms of what he offers, but he's not the big play back that Swift can be. But that's tricky because if you talk about big plays from the perspective of 10, you know, what do we call eight yard rushes, then Jamal Williams has as good of a chance as Swift, in my opinion, as in terms of the way they, they run and play to have as many big play rushes, except when you get out into open space and give Swift a big runway. And that's where he builds up the speed to be able to make big plays that Jamal Williams is not quite as adept at because he doesn't have the long speed that Swift has. But he's got, he may have better acceleration than Swift. Yeah. But it's interesting, you know, so one of the things that I looked at this year, um, Tej Seth um, over at Pro Football Focus, you know, pulls a lot of this cool data. And one of the things he did that I was pretty fascinated with, he did several things. But one of the things I was super fascinated with um, was he actually normalized for number of defenders in the box, you know, down a distance, all that kind of stuff. And then looked at just what you were talking about, but carries of 10 yards or more. So an explosive rushing play. Um and once you normalized, you know, what was the percentage basically under or over expected, you know, versus, yeah. you know, the league, you know, so explosiveness over expected. And while Jamal Williams graded out really well in a lot of different areas um, of his game, that was his weakness is yeah. that he actually graded as one of the worst backs in the leagues of being able to once normalized and compared to his peers on an even playing field, he just wasn't able to generate as many of those big plays, despite the fact that he was still a good player, had plenty to your point, plenty of carries at four and five, you know, yards. He just didn't break the 10 plus yarders near as often as his peers uh, in, in similar situations. Yeah. He gets what he gets, what they need to keep the playbook expanded. And that's, and so he's reliable and that's what they like about him. He's not as boom bust, um, as I think Swift probably was, um, but Swift had bigger plays. So there's they kind of complement that. You can see why they complement each other in that respect. But to mm-hmm. make the argument in your favor, whereas you know Jay and I might go, well, listen, you know, we just think Jamal Williams is the superior back in in most respects, and he should get more opportunities. Well, here's the thing. If you if you are good enough to have the role that Swift has, then then it doesn't matter that he's not Alvin Kamara or or Austin Eckler, as you said. You know, he's, and that's where it's fantasy, right? Fantasy yeah. versus NFL. Yeah. That's where that line can get blurry. Yeah, you, you know. Yeah. But but here's the art. But then to make another counter argument with that to, would be this: um, if we, you know. It wasn't like Jamal Williams was off the field in the fourth quarter. It wasn't like he wasn't getting opportunities in the second half when they were down huge. He was still used in the game. Maybe not as much as Swift. But what was fascinating, too, is San Francisco, with their great offensive line and some promise on their defense, while they were missing um, you know, their, their defensive tackle, and that might be helping why they were able to run on them and the Detroit was able to run on them in the first place. Um, the the point being is Detroit came back in this game. And mm-hmm. while, you know, and that was a, that might have been one of the most surprising things of the weekend 
is that Detroit was basically within, you know, maybe three to four plays of winning this game. And, yeah. And the other, they, the other thing I'll say about them, Matt, is the the plays per minute, like which is how I start try to look at tempo and these different things. Um, even before the heavy trailing, like they were running up tempo offense. Yeah. Um, so that could be a that could be a boost for both backs, really. Yes. You know, yeah. they're not going to run ninety two plays a game, but we could see an offense that runs instead of like sixty to sixty five that runs pushes for 70 and that may not sound like a lot, but when you get an extra five plays a game and you multiply that by 17 games a year, yeah. what do you get? You basically get like two yeah, extra games yeah. worth of plays. Exactly. You know, you're looking at another 80, 80 something plays. So, and when you look at, look at this overall, you know, first of all, like you said, Jamal Williams, isn't going to be sitting on the bench in on this team this year. He's going to be a valuable player for fantasy GMs. Will he be as valuable as DeAndre Swift? That's the big question. And and I think that if you're going to go by the first week, then you would say no. Jamal Swift is going to um, excuse me, DeAndre Swift is going to be the lead back. But I think when I accidentally said Jamal Swift, I feel like that's really kind of what's going on there is that you're going I think it's going to be a little more even. And the reason I say that is that Swift mates, Swift will probably get another couple of chances. But one of the things that the coaching staff did say is we're going to give him the ball a lot early on to see if he is what we expect him, expect him to be or what we think he can be. And after week one, I would look at it and say, I'm not sure they're going to look at that tape and say, he was everything they thought he could be. I think they'll say he made some good plays. He's still very much our, you know, our our be back without a doubt. Like there's no questions about that. But they may look at it and go, we need to get Jamal the ball a little bit more. There are some situations where he was just frankly a little better. Maybe in, you know, and maybe he needs to get a little bit more of the passing looks in certain situations because of his blocking, because of his route running, because even though he's a tight, he's a player that is not going to maybe get as much separation, he's going to catch the ball, he's going to run the right route, he's going to get the yards we need, even with a, a linebacker draped on him, or even with two defenders coming downhill and, and having the angle on him. And I think that that's where the possibility of them being a little bit more even is. But I, I would agree with you that the way to approach it from a fantasy gem standpoint is to make the presumption until we see the change that DeAndre Swift will be the lead back. But, but I just don't think it's going to be by as large of a margin as we saw in week one. Um, but But at the same time, you know, both have their value. I don't think we're going to see DeAndre Swift benched in any way, shape, or form in any way that I don't think we're going to see, you know, Jamal Williams' opportunities dwindle. I think, if anything, Jamal Williams' opportunities will grow slightly, you know, or or even moderately if Swift continues to, to have some issues with blocking and with some route running in that um, in the next couple of games. 
that's where I would look at it from that perspective. But I think that the Lions offense is just fascinating to me, Dwayne. And I, you know, I want to hear your thoughts more on what I talked about. But, you know, one of the things that fascinates me is that, you know, yeah, most people would say Jared Goff is bad. Um, and, you know, he did bring them back in that game. You look at the receivers they have, and they don't have a lot. But the guy that intrigues me is Quintez Cephas. Oh, man, me too. At he, the end of the game, he looked good. Yeah, yeah. And But the thing is, is, you can tell what the problem is with that, is that he doesn't get a lot of separation. Khalif Raymond's the speedster. Trinity Benson is fast. You know, Tyra Williams is gone now, though, for a little bit. So the, Cephas is going to get more looks, probably in that role. Um, and he's such a good contested catch player. And Goff trusted him at the end. And his great yeah, he, he, so while his routes were lower, once he got in the game, his targets per route run were better than everybody. Yes, meaning like once he was out there, Goff was looking for him. Exactly. And so Cephas is a game is a name that no one's talking about, and I think if you play in really deep type formats, so I'm saying yeah. twenty plus players on your roster, um, maybe even a little bit more than that, and twelve team or more leagues, Cephas is a guy that I would absolutely. Um, have rostered. And I'm have, looking at my utilization report yep. and it says tight end next to his name, which is wrong. It's <laughs> a receiver. I, he's I don't know on, why it says that. Yeah, he's on the cover. He's on the he's on my um, feature picture of my first week of the replacements as a preemptive pickup. Oh yeah, that's yeah, a good one. For exactly those reasons, is that because as Greg Cosell would often say, if you if if a player is getting the ball in the fourth quarter in a close game that tells you what you need to know about how the team feels about him. And yeah, and he only he only played 39% of the routes, but he led the team in air yards, led the team in end zone targets, yeah. was tied with TJ Hawkinson on targets per route run. Um, yeah. so he's uh, a trust lots of positives. Yeah, he's a he's not fast, but he's a trust throw player. So like I I've compared him to like if you took Anquan Bolden and Brandon Lloyd and put them together that's the style of play Quintus Cephas is because he's an acrobatic, you know, you know, wide catch radius player who's very physical but not very fast. And neither of those guys were very fast. Um, and with a little bit of the Brandon Marshall drops that you occasionally got from Marshall, who was also a physical player and after the catch. So if he can live up to, like, say, just the general zip code of any of those three players... He's going to be a bargain for you. and But the fact is, is that teams are reluctant to start those guys because they don't know whether or not their quarterback is going to trust them or not, trust them enough with those types of throws. Goff clearly did. Now, it was more desperation, we got to win now situations. So maybe next week if they're, you know, if early in the game they don't have that going on or they don't want to take the risk of getting an interception, and it's a it's a tight ball game, and it's you know throughout the first two to three quarters, you may not see those types of throws to Cephas as much. Um, but that's just more of a a possibility. I think I think he's the best receiver on the team, but and you know but he's not the fastest. And you could see that they were looking for separation. And I know someone who was watching tape for the Lions last spring, and he literally said. I don't like any of these receivers, and they asked me to watch him. He goes, the only one I actually like is Khalif Raymond because he's the only one who can separate. I said, I like Cephas. He goes, I know you do. He's like, but I'm not a, 
He goes, I don't know. I'm just not into him. And, you know, and this is a well-known, um, I'll just put it, this is a guy that I respect as an evaluator um, who well, has I think, to do some work. But I'm I think when you look at the, this. I think when you look at the offense, um, maybe what they want, because we already talked about, like, it's a unique offense. How many offenses are going to be centered around the tight end and two running backs being the prime targets in the passing game? Like it's not really an easy scheme to deploy, (laughs) you know? Um, So my thought is, and I think that's where the whole Trinity Benson thing came in um, is they just wanted the guys with the speed outside to just basically push everything off top. You know Um, I don't have, hang on, I can look real quick. Um, And while Dwayne, while Dwayne's looking, I'll just, I just want to thank our listeners because you know, uh, it's really nice to have a show that's sustainable with listeners when Dwayne and I can spend nearly 40 minutes talking about the Detroit Lions, you know, a team that we find interesting for sure. And we think you find it interesting from what we have to share. But, you know, maybe a big box outlet would go, no, don't do a podcast where you're going to spend 40 40 minutes plus on the Detroit Lions <laughs> unless you are in Detroit, you know, so, so- we appreciate that. So for Raymond, um, all of his routes were of the deeper or intermediate deep. So outs and ends, 50 and 25%, and then go routes, 25%. So definitely working, you know, further yeah, down stretching. the field. And, and then when you go to Trinity Benson, he, well, he's got three routes in the bag apparently right now. Uh, and a go route was 25%. Hang on one second. I got to fix that. Sorry. Go route was 21%. I had it on targeted. I had to switch to all routes. Uh, so 20, you know, so almost 30% of his routes were a corner go or a post. And then you got another 25%, uh, actually another 50%, you know, that are in that out end hitch range. Um, so yeah, I think it's part of how they're designing the offense to try to maybe create the space for the guys they actually want to get the ball to, you know, I I don't know. I'd have to go look at it more, but off the top, I mean, that seems to have some, that makes uh, sense merit and so looking at raymond again with all routes not just targeted 30 percent of his routes were go routes (laughs) so um, 35 percent were a go corner or a post yeah well what do you think we wore out the lions we wore them out yeah i think we did let's let's (laughs) unless you have a tj hawkinson question before we move on i think we're good i don't i think it's pretty obvious what we saw there and I, I, i am interested in your thoughts on him just quickly because i know you love hawkinson coming out um, you know, we're in the third year, so to be fair, like, you know, tight wanting... ends do take a, it, tight ends take a little longer. So, what are you seeing when you watch him on film? The utilization is there. Routes eighty three percent, targets per route run twenty one percent, targets for the team twenty percent, twenty one percent of the air yards. Um, like he's the alpha yeah. on the no, team nothing, as far as who they're targeting. Nothing I didn't ex- nothing I didn't expect or hope to see when I studied him at Iowa. To be honest. Like I've never wavered on like wanting to have TJ Hawkinson in a dynasty format, or if just as a football person wavered on the idea that he wasn't going to be one of the top five tight ends in this league over the next seven to eight years. If he stays healthy, that's basically how I feel about him. And from what I've seen, yeah. Yeah. Now, now a player that I really liked coming out of school and has had a really good start to his career who I'm really worried about right now is Lamar Jackson, because after doing the film breakdown of 
that game against the the Raiders. That offensive line, which is rebuilt after losing a number of players, it's not good. The Raiders reset the line of scrimmage repeatedly in the run game, um, and they were either in the backfield pushing the the guards and tackles and centers, you know, back into the exchange point, or there was penetration with unblocked defenders at so many on so many attempts. And then on top of that, with the fact that their best back, J.K. Dobbins, who pretty much spent the entire offseason getting his rapport down with Lamar Jackson that he already had last year, you know, in the read option game, all the zone reads and, you know, looks where, you know, Jackson can either keep, you know, keep it or you know, either pull the ball or allow the, and make the read, you know, of the defender there. Well, with the combination of the line not playing well and these new backs not having the practice time with Lamar, to have this rapport, the Ravens, it appeared to me, you know, they had, they ran a lot fewer of those plays. They didn't run them as successfully when they did run them. And on top of that, they ended up spreading the field a lot because from my count, there was only one running back they felt comfortable handling pass pro last week. And that was Tyson Williams, who literally got three pass reps, um, pass pro reps. Two were handled decently enough, and one the, was at the end of the game. Everybody said he blew, and I thought he kind of blew it. But then when I looked at it again, he did blow it, but it wasn't his primary assignment. He was late to come over to help out, and it was really because the Raiders did a masterful job of confusing the entire line with the blitz package that they sent, where they had Ryan Nassib basically at a tackle position, and late in the pre-snap, as Williams was scanning and identifying Nassib, then they move a, a cornerback coming out of the left you know, side, and Williams ends up having to fly over there, but that gets picked up, and then he tries to pivot back, but by, by the time he does, Villanueva had missed Nassib because Nassib had shifted to a wide nine position and got through on block, and by the time, you know, Williams pivoted Nassib was in his chest you know so it, you know it was technically he needed to do better but the Raiders yeah. knew what they were facing and they they picked the right package at the right time knowing who was going to be vulnerable vulnerable due to a lack of practice reps and pre- preparation that they could possibly have had with Williams based on the entire summer and that line. So when I look at all of that together, I it's going to be very important for Lamar Jackson and these backs to really get the the read game going again, because you know you heard the narrative that well Lamar um, Latavius Murray was better in pass pro. I, maybe I missed it, but I didn't see Latavius Murray execute any pass pro he, he had zero pass blocks yeah yeah <laughs> so i mean this is what's so funny and it is the greatness of having this data because people throw weird stuff out yeah and and they're was, just so randomly just like oh he and yeah, i'm like he was like no he, was, he didn't block one time yeah and i was like that's when i kept hearing and i'm going i'm getting so well, frustrated and, this week and, and pff they graded it similar to you they did not count that play against Tyson Williams. Yeah, that's the one you're talking about. He, he he got he got a pass blocking grade of 80 
which is really good. Now he only passed block four times. So it's a, it's a small sample, like sure. small samples like that. You know, it's not like you can trust everything, but given what he had, he did fine. Yeah. Um, he was out there for 19 of 38 pass plays and Latavius Murray was out there for seven of 38. Um, but Murray was in a route. Um, you know, he never had to pass block. Yeah. And when you look at this, you know, and based on what I saw him actually do as a blocker, he got in front of the man. He was able to deliver at least his pads. And when he did make contact, he was able to move his feet and even move some a defensive end around the, the arc to give Lamar Jackson time to at least get away from the pocket. Um, so his, I, his pass blocking was the highest part of his grade. There you go. <laughs> to, you to, from from a PFF perspective, yeah, rushing yeah. it was good. Receiving was eh. Right. But, but overall, uh, you know, he got he got a seventy, you know, point two, which is is pretty good. I mean, considering the guy is not, um, you know, he's never really played any snaps in the league. No, yeah, this is his first. This is his first NFL game. He's effectively a rookie, even though this is his second year. And this was his first game of his career. And what you saw is a guy who had had enough speed to win in the secondary. He found the creases he needed to find. He didn't finish quite as strongly as I'd like to see because he looked like he was occupied with protecting the ball. But all that aside, you can say from the running back perspective, it's still a fluid situation. They're keeping it a rotation. It could mean that Tyson Williams, if he continues to get better, he could lock up the lead touches. If he doesn't, and he and he runs a little too cautious, and it could be Murray, it could be Freeman, maybe it could eventually be Bell when he gets into football shape. You know, all of that could happen. But my bigger concern isn't who the backs are, because the offensive line was awful. The, and the fact that these backs don't have that rapport with Jackson, if... I'd like to hear what you, if you know the difference between certain types of plays that they ran last year and how many they ran in this game from a, from a read standpoint, because I, I always, from what I always observed anecdotally, Lamar Jackson, the past two years, routinely on read plays would get outside the tackles and have gains between, let's say, let's say conservatively, five to eight yards untouched to the boundary, like four to five times in a game. And sometimes it'd be as much as eight to 12 yards that he would have that. And when you're getting that many yards, even if it's the smaller end of that range, a clip untouched as a quarterback and the defense can't defend it, you're keeping the playbook expanded because you're moving, you're you're in favorable down and distance situations, which helps the passing game. There, you can't. You're not going to get as much pressure because the defense is on its heels, having to play the run more than having to play the the pass, um, and and they can't pin their ears back and pressure as much, um, and because you have the backs in the backfield on these reads, they're either there to block off of the the play action fake, and they're not being motioned out of the backfield. They're not playing as much spread which means that you have more tight ends in, in line and they're blocking. Some of them are blocking, like Nick Boyle would block and then go out for an outlet as opposed to just Mark Andrews, whether he was split or not, or just going out from uh, an inline position. In this game, they spread the field so much. Everybody was like, oh, it's a new Lamar Jackson. And then you heard the narrative of that he's like so much better in the pocket. And I'm like, he was good in the pocket before. 
and nothing looked different to me from that perspective other than the fact that there was more pressure sooner because of the fact that they had to spread the field and the defense was like they didn't figure them out they just knew that the playbook was so So what are we ta- are we talking read option outside zone yeah read op- read option that like i didn't see as much read option plays this this week and i think that if they can't get that together in the next 3 to 4 weeks the playbook is contracted and the defenses can go we know what's coming and the thing that's their bread and butter that scares the hell out of us so much they're not doing because because yeah, they don't so, have the rapport. And now Lamar's pinned into a corner. And now you can say he's been figured out. But it's really that the, the offense has been um has basically been shrunk and defenses find them more predictable. It's not that Lamar's really been figured out. Yeah, so in week one, um, and then I'll switch I'll take a quick look at last year. So in week one, I mean this is fascinating. Um yards before contact on read option plays 0.2 yards wow five five attempts for 24 yards yeah tyson williams had five attempts for 22 yards on on read option his yards before contact were zero so they got basically zero yards before contact on those plays besides the one carry uh, where trenton cannon got three yards before contact on, on that one read option play. They probably so weren't even can, expecting him to get the ball. <laughs> <laughs> You're probably right. I don't think anyone was, Matt. Uh, they were like, there's no way Lamar Jackson's giving that ball to Trenton Cannon. Um, we're just going to stick with Lamar. Uh, seems reasonable. Um, so last year, yards before contact uh, in 2020, 5.1 yards on read option versus zero yes. basically this last week. Wow, Matt, that's a great, great pickup by you watching the well, game thank you. um yeah that's yeah that's crazy so yeah if lamar doesn't have that and and the threat of those big plays are taken away that means well a couple things one they're going to be behind schedule on down and distance far more often which means the element of surprise leaves the bag because yeah. that's the ravens when you get yeah. seven yards on first down on that play and at second and three the defense now still has no freaking clue what you're doing on this yeah. down is it going to be Lamar? you could run is it going to be jk dobbins is it going to be play action? middle or is it going to be touchdown. play action for exactly now none of that can happen yeah that's that's huge um yeah and i and i do believe you know we've talked about this before in the past i do uh, i'm not saying lamar jackson can't ever evolve but i do think he's more limited than yeah. what we see some other players as a passer as far as being able to use the whole field. Right. Like he's really I good agree. between the hashes, great on deep crossers, uh, skinny posts, things like that off of the play action, off of all of this stuff that drives defensive coordinators nuts because they have to account for it all the time. Yeah. And then he, you know, pulls the ball out of the belly and rolls out like, and doesn't even run and just throws it. Um, I think it's, yeah, if they get behind schedule on down and distance and he has to become more of a, just a normal pocket passer and and the element and the the worry that a defensive coordinator has, has to have about handling all of these exotic run looks decreases they're going to be able to focus their game plan more on stopping the passing game which i think is much more doable yeah and now lamar jackson is taking more contact because i you what i used to hear would kind of made me laugh like for the past three years is Lamar Jackson, he's got to be careful. 
He's get taken. He's going to take a lot of hits, and we don't want him taking a lot of hits. And I'm going. Are you watching the same game I'm watching? Like he doesn't get touched, like on first and second down when he runs the ball. I've never seen a guy go untouched as much as he did and gain so so many yards and just go out of bounds. I'm like, no wonder they run him so much because they know that like he's not he's not taking punishment other than occasionally from in the pocket, but not as a runner except in must-have situations where they really say, we got to get this Lamar. But not like I'm just, you know, not on most of the plays. Now I think most of the plays, he's going to have to take punishment. And I think, you know, this is where you get concerned because as good of a player as he is, he is a slight of build player for a runner. And I don't care if you're slight of build or you're Brandon Jacobs incarnate. You take enough hits, you know, you look at Cam Newton, he took a ton of hits. Andrew Luck took a ton of hits. And they got banged up quite a bit during their careers. Russell Wilson, who got sacked as much as those two guys over his years, in terms of running, rarely took any hits, you know. And that was the difference between those three. And that's why Russell Wilson has never missed a game, I don't think. I don't think he's ever missed a game. So it's... You know, that's, you know, it's fascinating. When you look at Lamar, if you're a fantasy GM, I don't care what anybody's saying. I would, I would get out from under him quickly. And if you can't, then you're hoping that this read option rapport between him and one of these two to three backs has become really good. And they've fixed one side of the line, you know, with Ronnie Stanley getting hurt, that makes it unlikely. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, that is huge. Um, that's what I was actually just pulling up was to see the latest, like on all these offensive line uh, injuries. Um, so sorry, I was pulling up. Uh, right. So week week two, where are we at? We've got, um, yeah, Stanley's a DNP and he's doubtful. He hasn't practiced yet this week. Didn't practice Wednesday or Thursday. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. That's. That's going to be problematic. Um, you know, is there a player that can benefit here, Matt, in, in the Ravens offense, like from a fantasy perspective? Like if they've got to – because they're going to be in more passing situations now. Like that's about to happen because yeah, they're mean, going to be off schedule. I think it's got to be Sammy Watkins as long as he can stay healthy, and it's only because he does run more short routes than Mark Andrews. Mark Andrews is more the big play option, and let's say Taylor – you know, they tamp back the, the, the deeper over routes and intermediate routes that he runs. But he's the guy that gets lost in the defense. And, you know, I, I, I the only guy I can think of would be Watkins. I mean, I, Marquise Brown looked pretty good. But people say he looked pretty good because he made a tough catch on a low throw. You know, and, and sure, he got open. But he didn't look much different to me than he did in in other years like at least my first impression so i think watkins is the guy but i'm not if i'm not going out of my way to get any of these players like if yeah. you you got tyson williams and i know a lot of folks who i recommended tyson williams to it was on the basis that this offensive line would be better than it was um and that they wouldn't be any more injuries and as a result of that I would say, you know, expecting him to be anything more than a contributor who can give you flex production this year, 
he's going to have to be like the lead back to probably give you flex production um, at the way this surrounding talent looks. So no, I'm, I would be getting out from under my Ravens as fast as I can, or just knowing that there are reserves for you that you play on bye weeks and just hope for the best. Yeah. For me, the one that I do like is, and it's Andrews, just because yeah. he's never been in a route ever this much. Typically, he's out there, you know, for 70% of the passing plays. And so I think where efficiencies could come down, he's now out there 95% of the plays and it makes sense now looking at what's probably happening to the offense. It's like, well, pass play, get out there, Mark, <laughs> you know, we're running more pass plays because yeah. we have to. Um, so, I mean, I think, and that's just a pure volume thing. So it's a fantasy thing. Is it going to be good for the Ravens as an NFL offense? I don't think so, but looking at his targets per route run, looking at his, you know, routes, um, they're at, they're at elite levels. Like they match the very, very top, players so just on the usage alone i think andrews could end up um he's going to probably to your point give up something in efficiency but if you're in a ppr i wouldn't be surprised if this actually helps mark andrews score more fantasy points he could be the top Christensen of this of this era where yeah, it's like if you're standard league yeah. i could see this hurt him yeah. <laughs> you know <laughs> if you're in a standard league yeah. you may actually see his touchdowns go down like i would say based on what we've talked about here you could probably almost guarantee it that his touchdowns are going to go down but in a ppr where you just want the catches and the yards, and that's a much huger chunk of your fantasy football output, I would say this could end up being a positive for Andrews. Yeah, yeah. The fascinating, fascinating situation there. And I, it's just yeah, sad. Great, great, like eyeballs, like calling that out. And that's this is the true where film data come together, right? Now, it's good also sometimes when they don't agree and we talk through that, but sure. like when you call that out and then looking at it, like, wow, like that's an eye-opener. Well, I appreciate, I'm glad. And I always love it when, when I can make an observation that the data just kind of like kind of fits. I had one about Brian Edwards um, in that same films breakdown that another guy, um, Tommy Moe over at, uh, I'm trying to think of the name of the site. Um, oh, those guys are great. But Tommy Moe was someone who was saying that matches the data I pulled up on Edwards. But but anyway, we'll move we'll move forward. We talked about Russell Wilson last time we were together in this offense. You know, was it what you thought it would be cracked up to be at least with the unveiling? Um, yeah. So a, a couple things like the offense was very efficient. Um, so if you look at Russell Wilson, an average depth of target of ten point nine yards per attempt, eleven. <laughs> 11 play action 43%. That's up there. That's cranking it on play action. Uh 12% of the designed rushing attempts went to Russ. That number's been down for him a little bit recently, so they're looking to get him a little more involved in design called rushing plays. Scrambles 7%. So I mean if you look at that 12%, you know, uh and a 7%, you know, essentially and this isn't the perfect math, but I mean, he's going to be somewhere between 15 and 20% of the team's rushing plays at that rate, um, yeah. which honestly could make him the QB one overall. Cause he hasn't had that in a while. Um, yeah. He had some decent rushing numbers, but if he gets those and then what that could parlay into is more of those type of looks inside the five, which are going to turn into more rushing touchdowns, which he's never really had. He's not had a lot of rushing touchdowns. So I think what you're seeing for Wilson efficiency wise 
huge. Um, the, the usage in the running game, huge. Will it surprise me if he's the number one quarterback overall in fantasy football this season? No. The thing that could hold him back is what we didn't see, Matt, was, and this could be purely circumstantial, just to be clear, but only 54 plays, 2.2 plays mm-hmm. per minute. That is very blah. Yeah. That's very, that's, that's molasses. A 40 degree day. <laughs> that's molasses rolling down the tree and you can't tell the molasses is moving. And so Shane Waldron, you know, I'm still optimistic that that's all intact. They led on 83% of the place by four points or more. So when you lead by that much, I don't think Pete Carroll's just going to let you run off and do that. I think when the game is close or you're trailing or you don't get the lead as much as you did in this game, I think that's where the true test will be of, okay, are we going to see a potential 70 play offense, you know, in a game? Because that's where Sean McVay was. That's where the roots of this offense are tied back to is being in that 65 to 70 range. And if you get that, that's what you need for the receivers. Because right now what the receivers lived on is what we've been used to five targets, each four catches, you got to be hyper efficient. Like it's, it's, it's threading a needle very tightly to put up the fantasy production you want on so few passes. Now, having said that we have history here that they've done it over and over. So where you could say, I get it, and this again is where nuance comes in, typically you could say, well, a player that only gets to run that many routes and only gets that many targets per game, they're not going to be a top 24 fantasy receiver. Well, we've already seen Russell Wilson support that multiple times. So they're still going to be good fantasy options. But what we're looking for is that chance for Metcalf and Lockett to step up to being elite um, options in the passing game, which I still think is potentially on the table. But that's the data point that you've got to watch for. The one thing I will say, um, outside of the Russell Wilson thing, wow, if you drafted Chris Carson in the third or fourth round, you should be doing backflips. He's what everybody hoped Antonio Gibson would be. Look, Antonio Gibson may be a better player than Chris Carson. I don't know. You could probably tell us that better than I could. But Chris Carson is getting what people hoped Jonathan Taylor would. He's getting what people hoped Antonio Gibson would. And as much as talent matters in fantasy football, the snaps are the biggest thing. If you want to look at what drives fantasy production, the snaps and breaking them down across the situations matters more than anything. And again, that's just fantasy. That's not NFL. But 78% of the snaps, 64% of the rushing attempts. This is the big one. In a route, 66% of the time that Russell Wilson dropped back to pass. He was targeted on 14% of the throws. That's almost as much as the receivers were. It's 5% less. He was targeted on 16% of the routes that he ran. So it's not like he was a an afterthought. He was the third thought. <laughs> he and the two tight ends were basically the third wheel split across them. And well, not even quite that. Like it was, you know, that would be actually a disservice to them. They were a little more than that. But th- they were the third option after after Russ and after DK. Um, who were slightly ahead, but he played a hundred percent of the long down and distance snaps. So remember that's third or fourth down seven or more yards to go. I can't tell you what he did in two minute offense. Cause they didn't have to run it. Listen, they didn't use it. Listen, Dwayne, I'll just put it to you this way. If Chris Carson played in Detroit and was part of a three headed committee, I would drive up to Detroit 
and challenge Dan Campbell to a fight and get my butt kicked by that jacked up guy on Mountain Dew that's the coach of the Detroit Lions trying to argue that he's absolutely nuts not to use Chris Carson full-time in terms of talent. Because, yeah, he may not be as talented as Antonio Gibson, but there's a tier. Like, there's a tier of backs, and once you get to that tier, it's like, we don't need to debate you don't need yeah. to me like you don't need to debate Ezekiel Elliott and Saquon Barkley. People do. Yeah, it's like what's the point? What's the point? The, Chris Carson. The point is he should be in the tier with yeah. with JT and Gibson and all those guys. And right now, yeah, if you were to argue which one's getting used the way you want, he belongs above them. I he, bo- totally he belongs agree. above both players. Totally agree. Totally agree. And you could make the argument. You could probably make the argument that he belongs in the tier with guys like Hunt and Chubb in ter- because of the usage. You know, as, even if I told you that I thought both those backs were better than Chris Carson, right. it's not, it would be like saying that, uh, you know, it would, it would be like if you're, a, if you like rock bands, it would be like saying that Aerosmith and the Rolling, one, you like Aerosmith better than the Rolling Stones. You know, yeah. it just one or the yeah, other. Yeah, just to give matter. people an idea, what, what this utilization I just gave to you typically unlocks are 20 touch games. And that's what you want for your backs. That's kind of like the gold standard. If yeah. you can get a back that's in that 20 to 22 touch range, like you're, you're usually pretty well off. And what you want is a back that can consistently do that. And that's where the underlying utilization comes in because the game script changes every week, folks. So if you have a player that the game script does not impact as much, meaning they don't come off the field, when you're off schedule on offense, they don't come off the field when you got to use the hurry up, which we don't know yet. We haven't seen that part for Chris Carson. So he, he, he may not get that last year. That was definitely DJ Dallas um, or um, Travis Homer. Yeah. They were getting more of that. Even Carlos Hyde early in the season got more of that. So there could still be a hole in Chris Carson's game yet. We haven't been fully exposed to all the game scripts that the Seahawks are going to encounter but I will tell you, a lot of times, the, the back that gets the long down and distance, more often than not, they also get the two-minute. So we'll have to see. Now, some coaches do that differently, and I think the reason why is on long down and distance, you're less likely to target the running back more often. You're staying in the block and then leaking out because you need to throw past the sticks. You're not typically going to pick up the first down dumping underneath. But on a two-minute offense, right, you want the back out in the routes more often because you know you're trying to attack all areas of the field and, and you're not behind and down a distance you're just trying to keep the sticks moving 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 and so we'll see what happens with carson in that respect but right now he should be considered at a minimum equal to antonio gibson and jonathan taylor and i would put him from a utilization perspective which matters more right now for fantasy I would put him ahead of both players. And if you're struggling to find running backs and you're in a situation towards the middle of the season where you've got the luxury of just trying to take chances on guys who could be the handcuff, you want to get Alex Collins because Rashad Penny with the calf injury, that's going to linger yep. for a while. Now, Alex Collins can catch, but I could see a scenario where they go switch back and DJ Dallas becomes the two-minute back or Homer becomes a two-minute back. If Carson were to get hurt, but the thing is, is this offense continues to operate as efficiently as it did in the opener. Alex Collins in that Chris Carson role, we saw what Collins could do and they liked what he did in camp. So he's a guy you want to keep on 
you know, on your waiver wire list of guys to monitor every week as you're you monitoring who's hurt, what's going on, you know, that kind of thing. Monitor Penny, monitor, you know, Carson. And if that occurs, you want to jump on, you know, Alex Collins as a guy. Um, I'll say this, when you just, from watching the film, I mean, they found ways to get DK Metcalf open underneath in the middle of the field which I really like to see. They did the same thing with Gerald Everett pretty well. Um, the The offense was different in the red zone. I saw more throws into the middle of the field as opposed to the the um, the corner route or over route off a of play action they threw so often for over the past seven to eight years. You know that seemed they they didn't pull that out of their their toolbox as the first tool in the in the bag anymore, which was nice. They they varied things up. Um, Russ showed beautiful anticipation, you, you know, which was which you'd see. But Everett is the weapon they needed. They have been trying to find a tight end for years, and Graham has been was so so. Even if he was productive, he wasn't the Graham that they thought they were getting. Olson was, you know, on his last legs. You know, Disley kept getting hurt. You, you know, so. Everett gives you that run after the catch guy, a receiver type of body, enough burst to really be a factor detached from the formation. I think he's a big difference maker. And that helps even with D. Eskridge having a concussion and him stretching the field horizontally and vertically early on, but not being able to stay, you know, he might not be in the game for the next few weeks. And he's also dealing with that turf toe which is just a matter of a time before that thing needs surgery. And he's just hoping that he doesn't get stepped on the wrong way through for the, for the next 16 games or however how many games he, he plays after he recovers from the concussion. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, can you hear me okay, Matt? Yeah. Because I was breaking up just a little bit. Okay. Yeah, I was just, I was texting, if people saw me, I was texting my wife. I said, are you on Wi-Fi? And she just wrote, oops. So <laughs> ho- hopefully my connection improves. Sometimes her phone, like when it starts downloading, it's a Android kind of thing. You need a cat on a squirrel wheel to like get that, <laughs> to get that extra power juice going when she's on the, when she's on the Wi-Fi. I know people laugh. I do live out in the country. There are cows directly across the street from me. So my Wi-Fi, I'm like most of my neighbors can't even stream Netflix, just so you guys know. So when you think my Wi-Fi or my internet is bad, it is bad. Um, but I'm fortunate to have what I have. I have like this millionaire that lives behind me. We're not millionaires by any means, but he is. And so he actually got the phone company to run some good internet to his house. I happen to be close enough to be lucky to just get that. Wow. <laughs> so, so um, yeah. Um, so Anyway, now better broadband is coming this way. Like it's migrating, it's moving across our county. So it will eventually be here. But anyway, um, yeah, so on, just real quick on the Gerald Everett um, Disley thing. Um, they're splitting just so for folks for fantasy. Um, I think it is huge for Russell Wilson for all the reasons that you talked about, Matt. And again, back to kind of our rule of three, right? I feel like now what you've got is you've got Metcalf, you've got Tyler Lockett. You can work Eskridge in. He's still healing up, like you said, but you've got Everett as well, who can work the middle of the field. Um, he played, he was out there for 62% of the routes, uh, was targeted on 11% of the routes that he ran. Um, you know, but his, where, where he was really utilized was in the play action game. And that's where Will Disley was also utilized. Russ really targeted the play, the tight ends and the play action. So 50% 
um, of Everett's targets came on play action. 67% of Will Disley's targets came on play action. So that's that's how they're trying to to utilize those two guys. Um, man, I Lockett. I bet you go ahead. See, I bet you would see these two tight ends also show up as um, big factors of being on the field inside the opponent's thirty. Um, because when and you could probably even say just the red zone because Everett certainly had meaningful red zone um, work, even if he wasn't you know the main target. There, well, the play that went to Lockett that had that beautiful anticipatory throw to Lockett in the middle of the field that he had to adjust to and make that great catch for the score, that was a route, that was a, a look where Disley and Everett were on the same side of the field and, and, they, and they had Lockett and Metcalf on the other side. And what made that play so good is that they used Disley and, Lock, and Everett where Everett was basically running the seam, they had Disley kind of widen out towards the sideline. And then you had the back come out of the backfield and run like a swing route that forced the linebackers and safeties to widen out. And as a result of that, that allowed them to open up to the backside to hit the receiver on the backside. So the way they're even just using them in, in um, alignments you know, yeah, they were used 100 percent of the time. Once they got in the, inside the 20, both were on the field for 100 percent of those plays. There you go, there you go. <laughs> so another good call. <laughs> All right. So any more? Anything more to add about them, or do you want to go on to uh, to the Cardinals? No, no. no I'm still I'm still very excited about Seattle. I want to see a game where they're not leading the whole time. Yes, that's what I want to see. So we but but I, everything looks it looks good. I think the designs, the efficiency, it's all there. I just want to see the tempo now. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, a team that seemed to be like couldn't couldn't let go of the ball if they tried. It just kept coming back to them last week was the Arizona Cardinals. <laughs> Thanks in part to Taylor Wamps, you know, recovery process still going on. And the fact that J.J. Watt, Zayvon Collins, and Chandler Jones, as Chris Brown of Smart Football did, he retweeted somebody else's tweet that I saw that said, this is Chandler Jones against the Titans, and it showed Bobby Boucher basically coming out of like nowhere just to hammer the quarterback. And I I use that in this week's top ten because it was it seemed pretty much true that he was running untouched into the pocket and destroying Ryan. Ryan I was Tannehill. playing my resident Chandler Jones owner in my IDP league. Oh wow! Um, and this happens Sorry. to me. <laughs> I, no, it happens to me every time. He owns he's owned Chandler Jones for years, and when he plays me, he does this. It's like every time I mean, I just, we have a big group of all that's on there. I'm like, oh, Chandler Jones exploded for like 27 sacks and it's the week he plays me. So he gets, he gets like five points a week from Chandler Jones. He said, when he plays me, he gets 40. <laughs> well, what did you, what'd you think? Of, you know, that's yeah. On the happier thoughts, let, what do we, <laughs> what do you, uh, what do you make of this? Cardinals offense I mean you know one thing that Mark Schofield brought up on the on the the quick game podcast earlier this week is that or maybe in the round table that I did football guys was that Cliff Kingsbury specifically designed some first read looks to 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 um to Kirk in a way that you wouldn't have seen last year and so he was very um enthused about the fact that Kings, Kingsbury seems to be 
you know, being a little more active and customizing some design to his skill players and running offense that's a little bit more creative and creates a little, maybe a little more misdirection. I saw a little bit of late motion on some plays that looked like that there was maybe some, a little bit more misdirection going on this year. Um, but to see that, you know, while they used Rondale more, he wasn't a huge factor in this offense. Um, obviously, it was still the DeAndre Hopkins show, which I think for both of us, it's beyond us that anybody was like saying, DeAndre Hopkins, need to start fading him. Like, I I, I didn't get that. But, um, <laughs> but <laughs> like, to me, like, you could say, I think Tyreek Hill's the most dangerous receiver in the league. You could maybe argue that Stefan Diggs or Devontae Adams are – are one or the one of the two best route runners in the league and then I would just say that DeAndre Hopkins is the craftiest, wiliest and and most clutch you know catch point receiver in the league. Like if you pick if you get if you told me I couldn't get Diggs, Adams or Hill, I would just take I'd take DeAndre Hopkins and say have a nice day and he's probably going to play till he's 38 because he's so slow now that he could still probably do what he's doing now. He'll just have more ways of doing. It. He's going to be the Frank Gore wide receiver. He'll be your new Larry Fitzgerald. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, I didn't see anything that stood out to me like in a huge way from as far as the way they ran the offense. So they didn't use any more shift or motion versus what they did last year. It was right around 33%, which is the same as last year. Didn't use more play action right around the same amount that they used last year. But what I will say is um, the way that Christian Kirk was utilized um, was really going back to the days of letting him play from the slot. Um, 96% of his routes came from the slot in the game. And, that was huge because in the preseason, what we didn't know was who was going to get the, the slot routes. And this is where, again, like, and I report on preseason um, and I always tell people, look, we go with what we have, but it's not always 100% accurate. Every team's a little different, but what we saw was Rondell Moore was getting all of the slot work yeah. in the preseason. And you saw Christian Kirk actually playing outside um, when DeAndre Hopkins, you know, wasn't playing. And so there was a thought that, well, could it be A.J. Green and Christian Kirk battling it out for the outside spot? And Rondell Moore has the inside spot. That was in the range of outcomes. The other range of outcomes was, well, no, they're just letting Kirk, you know, play inside and outside just because, you know, DeAndre Hopkins isn't in the game and they want to see him play in both spots, right? Because eventually some point in the season, you may need Christian Kirk to play outside and inside. Um, but yes, I actually agree with what you know Mark said. Um, if you look at Christian Kirk from a standpoint of targets per route run, 22%, that's actually higher than what Hopkins had, even though his targets themselves, the raw targets were 17% versus 24%. Um, but, but average, you know, he was he was the number one target on end zone throws, 40%. He was the number one target on third down throws, 33%. So I think Christian Kirk, um, like from a fantasy perspective, I know a lot of folks looked at it as just probably a blip on the radar. I think he's the number two receiver in the offense, and I think he's going to actually grow in his role, and here's why. The Cardinals play three three personnel groups. They play 10 personnel, which is four receivers. They play 11 personnel, which is three receivers, and they play 12 personnel, which is two tight ends, two receivers. They, they run more 12 than a lot of teams, and they run more 10 than a lot of teams. So their 11 is a little less, but still, they're – 
the easiest way to think about it is most of the time, three or four receivers is on the field. And if not, it's they move to the two tight end set. And so when you look at Christian Kirk and you look at the way this game unfolded, again, a lot of games this past weekend with some uneven scripts where team, like they never trailed in this game. Yeah. Cardinals didn't trail one single play. They led for 84% of the plays. So the other 16%, the game was within three, three points, and that was only early in the game. So essentially they just led from the get in this in this matchup so when i look at christian kirk and i look at the way the team handled the personnel group in the first half over 70 percent of the plays were from 10 or 11 in the second half only 33 percent of the plays came from 10 or 11 personnel because they didn't need to they were running more 12 personnel they were trying to just get the game over with and not get anybody hurt and they just kept falling into more points still um and i think they were just trying to get the game over and so when i look at kirk and you look at his routes last week, 66%, that number can easily, when they're in closer or playing behind, that number could push for 75 80%. And then what you're going to get is what everybody hoped LaVisca Chenault would be this year when they were drafting him in the sixth and seventh round of fantasy draft, sometimes fifth round. Um, Christian Kirk is going to give you a much more explosive offense with a quarterback that loves to throw him the ball. Not saying that they don't, they're going to throw Chenault the ball, but I think Christian Kirk, when I watch him, he's a faster player. He's a more explosive player that can attack more areas of the field. LaVisca Chenault is a great run after the catch player, but I would call him more rugged, you know, than fast or as a game breaker. I think he makes plays that can help you win games, obviously, but Kirk is just, in my opinion, a better all round receiver. And I think he's in a better offense. So he was a must add for me. Um, I think he's a top 48 receiver with boom bust each week, but I think he could easily, Matt, turn into a wide receiver two the rest of the way. And the reason why he's playing the slot, he gets the favorable matchups, he's on the field, you know, enough, and he will be more whenever the games are closer. He's never going to be a 90% of the routes player. He's not going to be, but he plays in a good enough offense that he could be a really, really good wide receiver three for you for the rest of your fantasy season. I, I love it. I, Christian Kirk was my top waiver wire ad when I was on Chris Harris's show this week, and we did his waiver wire show, and we had to list our top five ads. And I can tell because his price was sky high in all my leagues. So thanks. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I would get him one hundred percent of the time. I think I got him. I, I sized my 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 fab allocation on him. Um, like on Elijah Mitchell, I sized to try to get him forty percent. Yeah. On Kirk, I sized to try to get him 100% of the time I bid on him, um, which was less than what you had to put on Mitchell. But that's how I, the confidence I had in the player. Um, I got him over half the time, but I wanted him all of them. So now I know why, because yeah. you screwed me. Thanks. Well, you're welcome. There you go. <laughs> but uh, but Kirk, I mean, listen, the, what you brought up about him being in the slot, he was he was the top slot receiver in his draft class. And I think people forgot about that because of the fact he was used outside. Yeah, last year only 16% of his routes came from the slot. Yeah. They kicked him completely outside. They killed him. Yeah. And so this is nice because what what you saw and what I thought might happen and why Kirk is now on the waiver wire for most people or was on the waiver wire for most people is that we all kind of presumed with – Rondale Moore, he'd be the primary slot guy. He'd be the primary inside receiver in those four receiver sets. Um, and then maybe the primary guy in three receiver sets inside. But it was flip-flopped. It was the more experienced guy. And honestly, the better slot receiver. You know, I mean, Rondale Moore may get there one day. But right now, Kirk is the man. And 
And, and it's just one of those things where you have so many players to keep track of. There's people that slip through the cracks. And I think he was one of those guys for a lot of folks who just kind of slipped through the cracks. I know he did for me where I just like, oh yeah, well, I know he's pretty good, but I just don't know how they're going to use him. And, you, you know, there's too many, you know, they got green now and they seem so excited about green. And, you know, I don't, you know, is that, that he really going to be something or not? I think he could be, but who knows? And then you just kind of forget about him. And I think that's what happened there. And, and Kirk, I mean, you know, just a good all around player. And with the way Murray's playing and the way he can buy time and the way a slot receiver can basically go deep with his deep speed to go deep against safeties and to get behind safeties who have to deal with Murray, you know, breaking the pocket. That's another nice little added benefit to all of this. So I agree. So, so the Titans, Taylor Luan got hurt. The, the, the Titans basically got whipped, you know, by this, this defensive front. And, you know, Derrick Henry couldn't get past the line of scrimmage on some plays just because of the, the penetration when you got J.J. Watt doing what he does and, you know, Chandler Jones and Zayvon Collins. It was great. But what concerned me was, more than anything, was Julio Jones. He just wasn't, he was absent in this game. He dropped, he dropped some balls. He blew a block that Mike Rabel basically called him out and was cursing in the pre, in the the media session post game, basically saying he needed to get his crap together, because um, he didn't play worth a darn, and and then the media talked about how Green, you know, Julio Jones wasn't really hasn't really practiced much with the team, and they've limited him in practice sessions. And then I, you know, before all this happened, I just wondered what the Falcons party line was on Jones when they traded him. Like what kind of sour grapes they were going to say. Because, you know, teams were always like, ah, you know, the, 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 the grapes didn't taste all that good anyway, you know, after. But, you know, bl- you know Blank was, his, his take in the interview was, he's going to be a Hall of Famer. He's a great player. We loved having him here. He's going to be in our ring of honor. And he's going to be honored by us when he retires one day. But the A.J. Green we come to know and love as a player and the player that made his bones here towards the final two to th- past two to three years, that he wasn't quite the same guy. And I'm not talking about on the field, but how he, how he related to our staff, how he related to the team, you know, how and then what we, you know, and as a result of that, he wasn't, he changed. Something had changed about him. Um, and so what's interesting is when you looked at him on the field, elite player when he was on the field, but, you know, I haven't watched the Falcons yet because it's been, for the past 12 years, I've they've had to be the primary team I've had to watch at football, guys. And this year I didn't have to do the recaps. So I took a week off from watching the Falcons for the first time in 12 years <laughs> because I just, I, I'm, I'm tired. I just didn't want to see any more, any more of them for a while. I wanted a week off. But, you know, what I can tell you is that over those 12, over those years with Julio Jones, you know, it went from every few games him needing some time off, you know, during a game or, you know, a ser- to maybe 
he missed a series or he missed part of a really it was he missed some plays then it was starting to be a series and it was the same issues the same lower leg issues then it was the series then this year it was like quarters at a time that he was missing so you worry that he's at the cliff that the age cliff where his age and is making it harder for him to recover as quickly with what he's playing through. Kind of like watching way back in the day, the former Jets Patriots running back Curtis Martin basically running on, you know, bone on bone injury and him gunning his way through it. You knew that there was going to come a point that he he just couldn't do it anymore. And I, I'm, I'm afraid Josh Jacobs is going to be that kind of player um, with the with the Raiders. But Julio seems to be going in this direction where he he can't even practice now on a regular basis. And and Mike Vrabel is a no-nonsense coach. If he's already called out Julio Jones in week one and probably had to do that because he has a young team and they brought in a future Hall of Famer veteran, if he can't make an example out of out of Julio, then he's going to lose his team. You know, so I'm worried about Julio. I didn't draft him in any league this year. I I didn't really recommend him to anybody, even though I had decent projections for him. I didn't go out of my way and say he's one of my guys. Um, you know, you could see it go either way. Right now, it's not going in a good direction, is it, Dwayne? No. And I mean, if you look at it <clears throat> historically, um, it, where the cliff starts to come. It's really in that, you know, N plus seven year from when they break out. And when I say break out is when they kind of explode for over 20% of their team's targets, right? Adjusted for injury games and stuff removed. And so, I mean, Julio, if you look at, uh, and again, now you have to be really good to even still be on the field when you're a 31 year old. Right. <laughs> so let's also keep that into context. This is not me saying Julio is just complete dust, but when you look at the receivers that have been good enough to make it to the same stage Julio is at now, typically you see an average dip in targets of 5%, you know, and this is going back to 2011, you know, cause I mean, I could go back to like the eighties or whatever, but the game has changed. The game's changed a lot. So, I mean, really like going back the last 10 years is what I really wanted to evaluate. And so that's where Julio's at. And if you look at Julio um, over the last, um, you know, several years, you mentioned two things. One is availability. So his routes, meaning percentage of time he was running a route when his quarterback was dropping back to pass, went from 85% to 76% to last year, 43%, right? Now he missed games last year. He only played nine. So we could go back another year and say it's 82%, 85%, 76%. Whereas early in his career, um, you know, you had some 90% years. Now Julio's always been a player that took his the type of workload and the way he plays the game takes a heavy toll on your body. So he was never one of these 95% route players. But what we've seen is a deterioration in availability over the last three years. And not only that, I think the targets per route run tell us that the quarterback, he's not open as much, right? I mean, he's just not. So we're, when, when, when we had peak Julio, Julio at age 25 is really where like it like just – everything just blew out of the water for him targets per route 27% then 27% 31% 28% 30% and 
at age 29 points, age 29.7. So call it age 30 um, season, still 30%, 29% that year, then hits 31. That drops down to 26%. Last year, basically was his 32 year old age, 22% targets per route run. Remember, we had just been at 30% three years before. Mm. Life comes at you fast in the NFL, <laughs> um, especially when you're a certain archetype of player, right? And and what you and the way you fashion your game. Um, and so now, this last week, we saw him at 18% or 17% targets per route run in, in the first week. It's one, it's one week, right? So it's right. not like, don't freak out. But and it was a bad game for the O-line. Yeah. yeah. But at the end of the day, Julio wasn't demanding anything more than what Chester Rogers was getting. You know, so um, I, I think it's just if in, from a fantasy perspective, if you can get anything for the name, I think you do, because I think the headache of availability is going to be an issue. I think a potential headache of now what's going on with his coaching staff. Look, Julio has never had to deal with that in his life. He's always been so good that a team probably just did whatever they could for him. Yeah. And probably ignored things. Who knows? Maybe he didn't have any of those issues. Maybe he was perfect and that just cropped up later in life i don't know um but you know he's probably he's having to face the reality and he knows it even though he may not want to admit it probably because athletes don't want to because they want to keep their mental edge but he's facing you know the fact that he's just he's a human he's just another human and we all deteriorate in some way shape or form you know over the course of our lives and um Football it just comes very fast because it all happens to be so centered on, you know, the physical side of things is such a huge component. And so uh, it's interesting because if he has problems with the coaches on top of already the normal availability and the fact that his skill is deteriorating, like I really don't want anything to do with it. Yeah. Like I would move him. I mean, I don't own Julio Jones anywhere. I own 0% of Julio besides a few best ball leagues this season. I'm in 29 managed leagues and, and Julio's on zero of my rosters. Um, just be- mainly because of what I know happens to target share once you hit get past age 31 season. And then two, the availability factor. Now you had a third factor in, I'm even more out. Yeah. And when was the last time he was a red zone factor for a team? I don't think that, I think the answer is. He's never, never. really been one. Yeah, exactly. And the, the more on of- the Andre Johnson type archetype from that respect, right? Really great player, but Andre Johnson also was never great in inside from a red zone end zone type targets, yeah. right? Now he could catch a ball and run after the catch and score a touchdown. He could catch a deep ball and score a touchdown, which Julio can do both of those things. But when you ask him to be this factor in the end zone, when you're being targeted in the end zone, both players are similar. Yeah. I would, I would love to say this for next time and maybe the next time we do this, but I, I've always contended from what I've seen on film that Matt Ryan is way overrated as a red zone manager. Um, And I don't think he's, from what I've seen, he has some real problems um, seeing open the open man and making the right decision in the, when it comes to throwing into the end zone um, from the red area, especially the green area. Um, and I saw so the combination of that with Julio, who wasn't much of that player. And now that that's gone, you know, now that Julio's even gone, I just, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm not expecting, and we're not going to, we'll go, we won't go into Atlanta, but I'll just say, maybe we'll do that down the line and they can be our Detroit lions for the, for another time. 
But because I, I think if there's a team that's going to be worse than the Detroit Lions, I think it's going to be the Atlanta Falcons. Um, and I'm, you know, I know that there are people who are optimistic about them, but I'm not one of them. I, I think this is a, they have one of the lightest lines and offensive lines in the league. And I don't think they're going to be able to run the ball as well as you'd like to see. And I don't think they're going to, I don't think Matt Ryan's going to be able to get enough protection to throw the ball well either. So listen, this was great. We, we have had a, you know, a fun full week of football and it was always, it's always great to be able to catch up with Dwayne and get to have him lay down the kind of work that he does, you know, with this data and talking about it within the context of what we see in the game and, and to get together and kind of, you know, mind meld what's going on here with this, uh, you know, with week one. You can find him at Pro Football Focus. He does fantastic work there. And then, of course, the Fantasy Football Hustle, you know, the podcast with Brian Drake. They do a fantastic work there. And, uh, you know, shout out to Jay Moyer. We, you know, we love Jay and we're glad that he's uh, he's doing well, raising his family. We're hopefully get Jay on here at some point um, here because he's like, when are we going to do something? I'm like, I'm waiting on you, brother. I just need you to... I just need you to be able to like take some time away, but he has no time right now and it's understandable. So I mean, he's um, only a doctor raising a, a family yeah, and... with a doctor as a, with a, as a spouse. Right. So two exactly. doctors trying to raise a family. Yeah. That's like, that's like herding cats right there. I don't think that, you know, so, so we'll see you. We'll see you in about 12 years, Jay, but we'll be here. We'll leave the light on for you, you know, and that might just mean me saying that in 12 years in dog years. So it'll be all right. It won't be that long. But uh, thank you guys for listening. Hope you enjoyed the show. You can always give feedback to us at the RSP cast on, you know, all the different outlets that you listen. So you guys have a good week.